This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today. Welcome back to another episode of the Sober Life Audio Experience. What's up, guys? Today, it is just me in the studio. Brian is out, and we don't have any special guests. So I decided to come in and do the show and take this opportunity to kind of tell you guys a little bit more about who I am um, what I do, how did I get to this position, why do I have a podcast, um, just so you guys who are listening have a better understanding of who I am. Um, you guys hear me week in, week out. You know, we, we do have a lot of amazing guests that come onto the show, and um, and it's great. You know, we have an opportunity to talk to so many people in, who work in this industry of uh, addiction and recovery, who who live in this world, uh, you know, people who have overcome so many wonderful things and who are doing so many things in this world. It's it's great. And it's, you know, I just want to first say that thank you for all those who are listening because you really have provided us a platform, you know, for us to talk about things that we as a society don't often get to talk about, you know, and addiction being one of those quote-unquote taboo conversations that that we don't necessarily have. And I think that the conversation is getting more prevalent. You know, the people are talking about it a lot more, especially, you know, with the, the president who's come out and declared a national opiate epidemic. You know, it is making the news more and more. <clears throat> you know, I, I live in San Diego and I follow the San Diego local news. And just last week, I saw an article that was front page and is talking about this opioid crisis in our country, but also in our community here locally, San Diego. And it just made me so happy to see that there is really a change going on. And it really does start with people just talking about it. So thank you guys who are listening, who are loyal fans, who tune in. Um thank you guys because you really have allowed this change to be possible so that being said you know if you do follow the show you kind of know how it is set up uh whenever we have guests come on we we typically ask them three questions um since it's to me today i guess i'll ask myself the questions um for those that don't know what the questions are i'll even give those questions so question number one that we typically ask guests is what is your vision Right, and that typically throws them off, and it throws me off. I've never really been asked that. Uh, even when we were, you know, Brian and I were talking about creating, you know, the three-question part, we didn't really dive into it too much. But my vision is is plain. You know, we had a guest come on, I think, six months ago. His name was Forrest. Incredible man. Uh, he's He's one of my dear friends. And he said, 
that his mission statement is to be a bright light in a dark world. And for me, that was something that I could relate to because I have grown up in such a dark environment. I've seen so many bad parts of life. And I've also seen some really beautiful, great parts of life that my my mission and my vision today is just to bring that wonderful part of life and make that available to those who are stuck in the trenches. And for those that understand what the trenches are, you know what that dark place can be. So I guess my vision is similar to what his is. It's to bring you know, a understanding that we all have a possibility and an option of having a great life, no matter what yesterday looked like, no matter what today looks like, and no matter what we think tomorrow looks like. <clears throat> Question number two we typically ask them is, what do you love? And we get some jokes with that. For me, it's it, it's super simple. It's my kids. Uh, you know, I have a daughter who just turned three this last Monday, we took her to Disneyland, and I have a stepson who's nine years old. Um, <clears throat> to me, they are the most important things in my life on a regular basis, and they, they teach me. They constantly teach me how to be a man, how to love, how to have compassion, how to play. Um, you know, whenever I'm down or I'm hard on myself, my daughter can sense it. She's got, like, this weird sixth sense, and she'll come up, and she'll just put her both hands on my cheeks and she'll say, Daddy, I love you. And then she'll just go on whatever she's doing. And, um, man, I love that. You know, I never thought I would be a, a father. I never thought I wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, fatherhood came on pretty suddenly for me. It wasn't like a planned event. It just happens. You know how it happens. <laughs> I don't have to go into details. But, you know, when it happened, I was really scared. And I was living in a lot of fear. And over the last three years of being in this role as a father, um, I think that they have been my one of my biggest motivators in life to keep progressing. And at the same time, they have brought me tons of joy and tons of happiness. So, end of the day, what do I love? I love tons of things. I love ice cream. Um, I love food. I love. I really love food. I love sobriety. I love sober people. I love talking about sobriety. Um, I love God. I love talking about God. I love going to new places, exploring the world. But, you know, the one thing that I love the most is my kids, um, which leads to question number three. Question number three is, what is one book that has greatly impacted or shaped your life? Um, for me, I go back to the one book that I've read more than any other book. It's a book called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And I read this book first when I was like 12 years old, and it was super dense, and I couldn't really understand it. It didn't make a whole lot of sense, but I could pick up on what the content was, and it was talking about spirituality. And at this point in my life, I had just been adopted and I was thrown in from, you know, being raised and grown up in foster homes into a pretty decent lifestyle of a stable, loving, caring family. And I was really confused. I was acting out at school. I was just going through the ringer. And uh, a friend of mine, his dad was, you know, super adamant that I read this book. And so I picked it up and I started reading it. And it was talking about this guy 
um, this kid who goes through this old, um, like Native American process of becoming a man, you know, and going on this vision quest. And for me, it stuck out and it was so profound. And as I, and each time I read the book, um, I'm learning something new. So for me, that book, there's tons of other books out there that are great and wonderful. Obviously, Alcoholics Anonymous, that book changed my life. There's no other book that has changed my life as much as that book. And I use that book as a textbook today for a guide to live. But um, teachings of Don Juan for me personally, that was the one that kind of set it all off for me. <clears throat> And then, you know, how the show goes is we typically go into, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? So I guess for me to keep it brief and keep it simple, um, I don't want to, I don't want to go too long on, you know, kind of what it was like. Um, but I grew up, you know, my mother was 16 when she had me. She, she involved herself in, prostitution she was heavily addicted to drugs i grew i I actually uh was born in a drug rehab in southern california and uh yeah and uh so the environment that i grew up in right off the bat was chaos and like at its best i can describe it as chaos um she was uh, a single mother my dad who is significantly older he was involved in drugs as well but he was also involved in gang life and i didn't really meet him until i was four years old so for the first four or five years of my life you know i was i was with my uh i was with my mom and my grandparents when my mom would just disappear right um and I would stay with my grandparents, and we always said she was on vacation, and now today I know what vacation means. I've been on a few myself. But that was like the first four years, and eventually I ended up with my dad for a little bit, and he couldn't he couldn't handle um, raising kids, so I ended up back with my mom, and by the age of five, five and a half, roughly around that, I found myself being taken away into the custody of the California foster care system, where I spent you know, the next, um, five, six years in and out of foster homes, group homes all over California. I was separated from my brothers. I have two younger brothers that I basically raised. I was taken away from them because I was a problem child, quote unquote. And, um, I grew up alone. I grew up, uh, really being angry. I remember just being mad, mad at the world all the time. I was just constantly mad. I was mad at you. I blamed you. I blamed everyone for everything that was happening in my life. And, and, uh, as I look back, honestly, you know, to my core being, being honest with you guys is like, I cannot recall a time prior to the age of 10 when I was happy or that I felt joy or that I felt secure or safe. It just, that's just not part of my story. I didn't have that upbringing. You know, and I know there's a lot of people out there that have the same childhood experiences because I've met some of those people and I've talked to a lot of those people. Um, you know, my my life drastically changed and uh, it was for the better, actually. Uh, you know, I was adopted by this family when I was, you know, 10, 10, 11 years old. They actually reunited me with my brothers. This is a really cool story, guys is that me and my brothers had been separated. I hadn't seen them for about three years. And uh, this family, you know, who are my parents today, they were actually about to 
move forward with adopting these other kids. They really wanted a boy and a girl, and they were uh, finalizing, wrapping up the adoption with that. And uh, my case manager put my file in front of him and was like, hey, listen, we know you're all set, but here's like a Hail Mary. We're just throwing this out there. Here's another case. It's a pretty heartbreak case. And uh, the way that my parents tell it is they took the file home that night and they talked about it and they prayed about it and they went to sleep. And when they woke up, they both looked at each other and said, this is what we have to do. And they said that it was a it was a decision that was heavily influenced by God, and you know for a long time I didn't believe that, but today I can absolutely believe that as being true. So they decided to take um, my two brothers who had stayed in one foster home the entire time we were in foster care, and me who was in a dozen different foster homes because I had a problem with fighting or running away, and I was labeled like I said this problem child, and they decided to bring us together. And um, when they did that, they didn't know that they were saving our lives, but that's in turn what they did. And uh, all all the successes I have today, the man I am today, the values, the morals, the ethics, the, the code that I live by, my ability to love, compassion, all of those things that I have today, I attribute to my parents. Like, I didn't learn those anywhere else growing up. Um, in fact, by the time I got to them again, by the, like the age of 11, I had very twisted, uh, perspective of the world and, um, I was headed towards disaster. Now being adopted and having this profound change in my life, uh, it didn't, it didn't totally correct the course of the direction I was already headed in. Right, but in the in the long run, I had learned a lot and was given the tools necessary that when I was prepared to start making right decisions, I had the ability to. Um, that being said, you know my my whole uh, junior high and high school career was in and out of trouble, in and out of trouble. I was really good at sports. I was really competitive. Now, I had a competitive drive that was a bit different than everyone else because I played, you know, high-level sports, and I played with really good athletes. And not to say that I'm not a good athlete, but these guys were driven to, to play sports and be athletic for so many other reasons than me. I just wanted to beat everyone. I just wanted to. I just wanted people to choke on their words. I really just wanted to prove that I was better than you just to rub it in your face, not because I wanted to be the best, but just because I uh, I had a bone to pick. I, I walked through life with a huge chip on my shoulder and I uh, just wanted to rub it in your face that I was better than you and I could do anything that I wanted to. And regardless of what you can say, I was going to do it anyway. I developed a bit of a problem with authority figures. I had... Um, I had multiple principals and teachers say that I had a lack of respect for authority, which I would in turn disagree. I didn't have a lack of respect for authority. Like I didn't have any respect for authority. There was there wasn't even a smidgen of res- I didn't know what respect was, so it was hard to explain to somebody 
that, listen, I didn't grow up having a respect for anyone, right? Like, I respect myself. Like, the condition in which I grew up in was really dog-eat-dog. Like, every man for himself, you take care of yourself. And so trying to describe that to anyone who didn't have that same experience, I looked insane, right? I looked like I was just making shit up. And I looked like I was just acting out when in, in reality it wasn't that. And for a long time, like, no one understood that. So, like, automatically, from the get-go, I was different than everyone around me. I couldn't relate to anyone. I couldn't relate to my peers because of the circumstances that they were growing up in. I couldn't relate. Oh, you're happy? And you have a meaningful relationship with your parents? And you love them? I couldn't relate. And for the longest time, I thought that I loved my parents, but I really, I didn't have any idea of what love meant, right? And I didn't relate to adults, right? Because they thought there was something wrong with me. I remember going to counseling the first time when I was 12, and it was because I said that I wanted to kill myself. Now, this isn't, I don't want to downplay suicide because suicide is, is real, and depression is real. And at no point in my life have I ever really been suicidal. I just want to say that disclaimer. Now, the first time I started therapy is because I said I wanted to kill myself. And what I la- later found out was it wasn't because I actually wanted to die. It was because I wanted to stop living the life that I had been living. And I didn't know that there were options. And I'll get and and that's a really important point that I'll get back to in a minute. And that point, in fact, changed the whole course and direction of my life. But I, I went to therapy when I was twelve, and I was sitting in front of a therapist and and my parents, and they were talking about uh, putting me on ADHD medication because I definitely had ADHD, right? Again, it was people looking for a p- problem that didn't necessarily exist, and so I spent you know, the remainder of my school days on Ritalin, Concerta, uh, you know, all these different ADHD medications that what they did for me was completely isolate me even more, right? So I already felt different and I already felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And then I was put on these medications that almost completely took my personality away. Right? I became almost a zombie, a walking zombie. I started to excel in school. Damn, I got straight A's for the first time. It was incredible. Yeah. That that helped. But at the same time, I just it just drove me further and further away from society. And so the first time that I found drugs, it was like, whoa. Shit. Holy shit. Finally. Ah. Uh, it was like I could breathe for the first time. It's like, uh, you know, imagine imagine being in a room full of smoke your entire existence and then finally being able to walk outside into clean air. And you take that first breath. That's what it was like for me the first time I did drugs. And the first time I did drugs, I was 13 years old. And, um, you know, my uncle and a friend, they were they were doing methamphetamine and they thought it would be funny if they got the little kid high and it was pretty funny for them you know looking back i got to imagine they cracked up at it 
you know for me though it was it was such a wonderful experience now i didn't i didn't start off doing drugs hardcore in fact that that one experience uh freaked me out um i remember just sitting on a couch for like 12 hours and i didn't move i didn't do anything i was like whoa like i don't ever want to do that again but at the same time there was something comfortable about that you know, so I started to hang out with a lesser crowd. I started to hang out with people a little bit older who I knew they were burnouts because they looked like the rest of my family. And um, I started to hang out with these people. And, uh, you know, the first time I drank alcohol, I, I took it down and it was like, ah, oh, this is it. Holy shit. Right. It was the first time I felt good enough. It was the first time I felt like I was part of something uh it was the first time i felt like i belonged and i just went for it and by the time i was 17 i was doing every single drug you can ever count on i had dropped out of school well not dropped out they uh we it was a mutual separation right they were like you should probably uh you need to go and i was also like yeah i need to go this isn't working for me so I was out of school and um, getting in trouble. I was not heavily addicted to drugs, but the cycle had started. And I had found myself in juvenile detention center for assault on a peace officer. And I was looking at some serious time. And for someone that grew up in a dog-eat-dog world, every man for himself, you make decisions that are constantly um, in your best nature. Right. So when I had a Marine Corps rec recruit, uh, recruiter come into the, to, into the juvenile hall and was like, Hey, we can help you. I said, you can get me out of here. And he said, yeah. I said, let me sign up. So I signed up and I started the Marine Corps and I left everything behind and I really went for it. Um, which thus started another chapter of my life. Uh, I left the nest. I left all, all my friends and family behind. I really got an uh, opportunity to go out and explore the world and see the world and, and do some new things and uh, be a part of something bigger. Um, you know, I'm not going to talk too, too, too much longer about this. I really do want to fast forward the story and get to where I'm at today. So what I'll say about the Marine Corps is... Uh, eventually a time came where I decided to pick up a drink and a drug again. And well, you, you guys already know how that turned out. Um, I eventually got kicked out of the Marine Corps. Uh, actually I, I got kicked out of the Marine Corps and went directly to federal prison. Um, I then spent a year in federal prison. Uh, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. Uh, you're in federal prison, get out of prison, halfway house, date some girl, break up, do drugs, halfway house, go to jail, break up, do drugs, uh, state prison, like back to prison. Um, when it was a total of three, three, three and a half years in prison, um, a couple jail sentences and a whole lot of damage. Um, you know, what that damage looked like was obviously I, I developed a pretty lengthy record, but the, the damage was really emotional damage. It was spiritual damage. And yeah, it, I inflicted myself, but I also inflicted the people that really cared about me, the, the family and friends and people I had in my life. I had, again, once again, 
completely isolated myself. And uh, I just want to point out real quick that all of this crap does happen to me. Um, you know, being raised in a foster home, my, my mom being a prostitute, right? Like the abuse, the neglect, the sexual harassment that I didn't even talk about, but that shit happened, right? Like the getting in trouble at school, getting kicked out of school, the drugs, the chaos, the going to prison, the get like all that stuff was terrible. But none of that stuff is what makes me a drug addict and an alcoholic. I just want to, I just want to make that clear, right? That all those things were consequences or just a reaction of addiction and alcoholism in either my parents' lives, my family's life, or in my life, right? That those things in themselves don't mean I'm an addict or an alcoholic. Man, there's a whole nother list of things that mean that. But those circumstances are not them. So when I got out of prison the last time was January 2012, and when I got out of prison, again, I had this master plan that I was going to I was gonna do good, right? Whatever do good looks like. But I was going to do good. I was going to get off parole. I was going to have a sweet life. I was going to find a hot babe. I was going to get a dope whip. I was going to get a job that paid me a whole bunch of money. Like, that was my plan. I had no details at all. But I knew that I had to go to rehab, <clears throat> And this wasn't the first time I'd been to rehab, but this was the first time that it was mandated by courts. In fact, I got out of prison the last time with a split sentence, which means I still had um, like four years hanging over my head that I would have to complete if I didn't go to rehab or if I didn't, if I messed up in any way. <clears throat> anyway, I found myself in rehab in San Diego. I'm not from San Diego. This was my first time living in San Diego. I was in rehab and you know, I was there for like seven, eight days, sober, completely sober, sane state of mind, if you will, right? Before eventually I got drunk and I got loaded, right? In a place that housed 180 people who were trying to stay sober. Like I, I sought out the one or two people that was getting loaded out of this 180 people in a basically kind of like a lockdown rehab if you will it's actually right down the street from the studio it's pretty crazy but um i got loaded and they kicked me out of the rehab and i was like oh once again here i go right i'm just gonna keep screwing up i'm just gonna keep fucking up because that's what i do that's what i always do and so i left the rehab and i became homeless i didn't have anywhere to go my parents were like yo you're not coming home my friends were like dude you're burnt Right? Like, I'd burned every single bridge I'd ever had in my entire life. And um, so I was homeless. I was living downtown. I found some people, you know, like every man for himself. Dog eat dog world. I take care of myself. I'm going to find a way. I found a little tent and shit. I found a nice bush downtown. And I was kicking it. I was getting loaded. But I was so fucking lonely. Like, I cannot begin to describe the loneliness and, like, it chokes me up thinking about how real that is. Is And, you know, like, how many people today feel like I did then, you know? Anyway, <clears throat> I started going to AA meetings, and I wasn't sober, 
I didn't really even have an intention of getting sober, but I like I just wanted to be around people. I wanted some friends. I was so lonely and desperate that I would go to these meetings. So I had a skateboard. That's all I owned. And I would skate all over San Diego and I'd go to like four or five meetings a day. And in between these meetings, I'd continue to get loaded. Right. And eventually I was like, damn, dude, like some of these people are getting sober here. Like there's something happening here. And they're like, yeah, man, get a sponsor, do the steps. Now, I'm not really keen on anyone telling me what to do, right? Because that's not what I grew up like. But I thought this might be for my best interest, right? Because I was currently on the run from parole yet again. I was definitely going to go back to prison. And I was like, hey, Hail Mary pass out there. Maybe I'll get a sponsor. Maybe some shit will work out. So I asked this man to be my sponsor because he had given me uh, a ride to a couple meetings and, in fact, bought me a couple burritos, a few times we hung out and you'd be like, hey, you, are you hungry? I'd be like, yo, let me get a California burrito or let me get like three of those bad boys, right? And so I picked this dude up or I picked him to be my sponsor because he fed me. But it was one of the greatest things I'd ever done because I was not sober yet. But he had said some things that impacted the course of my life. And this is getting back to one of those things I said earlier is this man told me because I used to, I was living in this, this uh, bridge right over here on Washington Street in the skate park. I was living there and I would wake up every morning and be like, damn, I hope this bridge crashes on my face, right? Because I didn't want to exist anymore, but I didn't have the courage or whatever it takes to end my own life. And I really wanted people to feel sorry for me. I don't know if anyone could relate, but I was like, you know what, like, Maybe a nice page in the paper where it said, wow, this man had so much potential. This is such a tragedy, right? Like that sounded a lot better. <clears throat> so I was telling my, my sponsor this story and uh, he was like, yo, like you don't want to, like you don't want to kill yourself. And I was like, dude, like you don't understand this, this life, man. I, I can't, I can't do this life. And he he took he you know he held my hands, and this is a grown man. He held my hands, and he said, "You don't want to live the life that you've been living, and you don't know that you have an option." And for me, that that set in motion uh, a multitude of things, is because I first recognized that what he was saying was true, and I believed him because I knew him to be an honest man. And secondly, it was the first time anyone had really pointed out that I I do have options. Because I was refined to the way of life that I don't have options. And he's the first person to tell me, Roman, you have options. Whew. And that shit lit me on fire, right? So that was, that was six and a half years ago. Look, about six and a half years ago, Right, that had that conversation with that man. Uh, I got myself back into rehab and I got sober and I got my life together and I went back to school and I and I made a declaration that I'm gonna make this this work working with addicts and alcoholics, I'm gonna make that my whole life mission. I had a whole nother dream back then, you know. But what I found 
is that when you work with people who are suffering and, and you are able to lend a hand and help them to come out of that fire and become whole again, there is nothing more rewarding than that for me. That's everything. The, the, the peace of mind that I get when I am able to just have a conversation with somebody and that conversation just lights them up, even if it's for a minute, like that does everything for me. And we're talking about something that is deadly, that is killing millions of people. This is something that it doesn't give a shit who you are. It'll come, it'll creep into your window at night and it will afflict your son and your daughter. It'll take away the people closest to you. It'll ruin marriages. It'll ruin businesses. This thing, addiction, alcoholism, it will ruin absolutely everything if you give it the opportunity. And we live in a society today where we give it tons of opportunity. Now on the back end, we also need to provide opportunity for those same people to get out of the depths of hell. Right on on you you watch the Super Bowl there's 20,000 fucking commercials for Coors Light, right? We're we're given every opportunity for everyone to drink. You know, but how how available are those opportunities once you've had too many drinks? Once you've gone a little too far. Once you've ruined something. How present are those opportunities? They're not. And so that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this podcast is if today, one of you guys who are listening, if you guys share this, please share this podcast because you might share this podcast and somebody might listen to this today and have a profound experience like I had six and a half years ago and it may change the course of their entire life. And that person may then reach out to this person, right? We're talking about the ripple effect. We're talking about humanity changing. We're talking about one person helping another person who in turn helps another person, right? Pay it forward. So for me, my passion today, my purpose, my vision, I'm doing all kinds of crazy things. You guys know me. If you guys don't know me, you could you could uh, see me on Facebook. I'm all over Facebook, Instagram. I love that shit. Social media. The thing about social media is, yes, it makes us more unsociable or less social. Less social. It makes us less social. True. But it also provides an opportunity to reach more people, which in turn, if you use that correctly, you can be more sociable. Guys, social media is not the problem here. Okay, our problem is the thing that sits in between both of our ears that has been and always will be the problem. Now, the thing with social media, so getting back to it, you guys, you guys see me on social media. I'm doing a lot of things. I I, I started a coaching business last year with my best friend, Brian, who also is a co-host on this podcast. Love the dude to death. That dude's... um, that dude's passion for life is unmatched, man. His ability to work with alcoholics and addicts in this space is second to none. Like, 
Um, I, I absolutely love that guy and I adore that guy. He's been a great friend and he has been a wonderful business partner and a co-host. I know you guys all love him too. Give Brian a shout out. Shout out, Brian. We love you. Anyway, um, you know, we started a coaching business last year because we were like, how can we help more people? Like, what can we do to help a larger number of people? You know, because we're pretty big in our 12-step community. We're pretty big in the San Diego community. But how can we do more? And we're like, oh, let's let's fucking teach people. So we started a coaching business that's been going for about a year now. And that's been successful. We've successfully helped coach a lot of people who are still sober today. And, you know, me and Brian right now are like, okay, what's next? Right, we started the podcast, and with the podcast, we've been able to reach a larger, uh, a larger crowd, and a larger audience. And this isn't, you know, this isn't to um, stroke our egos or anything. Like, yeah, we know we're good, obviously, but there's also a purpose behind it, right? There's a message behind it. That's why we we seek out so many great guests to bring them on the show who are very informative, who have tons of knowledge and experience that they can share with you guys. Because at the end of the day, this isn't about me, right? Like all I want is for my kids to be good. I want to be able to provide for my family. And um, I just want to be able to find my place in helping others. That's it. For me, that's it. Key to life. Those three things, take care of my kids, provide for my family, help others. I'm straight. I'm good with that, you know? Now, the things I do on top of that, I do because I absolutely love them, right? Like, I have an album coming out, and you better fucking believe that in this album that I will be addressing alcoholism and addiction. That's who I am. My Instagram is soberbro. Right for those that you don't know, my Instagram name is Sober Bro. Everything I do, man, I, I walk with purpose, and I try to hold myself as an example of what sobriety looks like and what sobriety can do. Because I'll tell you what, there are people out there representing sobriety who are not representing it in a good light. And I'm not here to knock anyone, and I'm not here to accuse everyone, anyone. I'm just here to say, like, if you are sober and you are a sober member of any sort of group, and you are actively out in the world uh, preaching sobriety, like, make sure you follow what you preach, man. You know, make sure that you hold yourself in such a manner where it's attractive. You know, because for me, if I if I came into, you know, this realm of recovery, and everyone around me was kind of like losers and lames, or like stiff asses, or just like unproductive members of society, I would probably not be sober today, right? The fact was, is that I saw some people around me get better and get their life back on track, and it was super attractive, right? And I'm not talking about the cars and the nice job and the house and shit like that. That was nice too. What I'm more talking about is people being able to, simple shit, simple shit like being able to walk around not looking at the ground in shame, right? Because I did that for a long time where I would just walk. I wouldn't look at people because I was ashamed to make eye contact. Anyway, I don't know what I did with this episode. I don't know where I went. Maybe I blacked out. Was this a blackout? Is this what it's like? Anyway, 
that's a little bit about me, guys. Um, a little bit about where I come from, who I am, um, how I got here. Who is this co-host of Sober Life Audio Experience? Who is this guy? Well, I hope now you have a better understanding kind of of who I am. I didn't really dive into what my life is like now and all the things that I am doing now. And I think that that may be good for a, another episode probably soon. Maybe I'll do a Roman part two. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll do a Roman part two where I'll do, you know, based on who I am today and what I'm doing. Um, but there's a little bit more about me, guys. And um, for those listening and those watching, what I would say is just share this. Share this episode on your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you are. Share it on social media because you guys can be part of this movement too. Is that what I know is that we all have an opportunity today, right? The most profound experience I've ever had in my life was somebody basically telling me I had choices. And today, if I could tell you that you have choices, I would tell you. And I am telling you, you have a choice. So, if you would like to be a part of this movement of people getting better, please share this message, right? Because somebody's life may be affected by what they hear. You never know. You can be that person. So with that being said, thank you guys so much. Be sure to share. Um, you guys can find me. Obviously, you're watching me on Facebook, but those who are listening to the podcast, you could find me on Facebook. Um, Roman Brawley, last name is B-R-A-L-Y. You can find me on Instagram. It's sober underscore bro. That is sober underscore bro. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't use that. Um, I'm not quite sure what that's for. But anyway, and you can always find me here on the Sober Life Audio Experience. Peace!